the Venice Biennale is kind of this weird carbuncle almost that's kind of limpet that's attached itself to the the city and it's the oldest visual arts event of its type so it's a bit like a grand duchess or a dowager it does feel like that a little bit that's brenda croft in 1997 brenda was a young curator and with hetty perkins and victoria lynn brought together the 1997 venice exhibition fluent it featured the work of three aboriginal women emily kame noare yvonne kulmatry and Judy Watson. Before that, in 1990, Rover Thomas and Trevor Nichols had been folded into one exhibition, making them the first Aboriginal artists to present at the Venice Biennale, one of the world's oldest events of its kind. It wasn't until 2017 that an Aboriginal artist, Tracy Moffat, singularly represented Australia. And in 2024, Camilleroy Bigginville man Archie Moore will become the second. When Archie found out he'd been selected, he said he was surprised. Bit of a shock and overwhelming, but pretty very excited to go to Venice. And I've been there twice before, but as a an artist in the Australian Pavilion is next level. It's fair to say that the Venice Biennale has changed the way Aboriginal art is seen internationally. But even still, there's been a deliberate attempt to position the careers of artists working remotely, in a style that's more or less traditional, with university-trained urban Aboriginal artists who work with an eye on Western art history and contemporary movements. Vernon Arke has also exhibited his work. He was part of the 2009 Biennale, along with a handful of other contemporary artists. The pavilions function as like these little embassies. And another aspect is that they are spaces for disruption and kind of a place to ask questions of their own countries. And and some artists do that uh, amazingly. And then other places, you know, when you go into into some of the pavilions, it's interesting, but they trade in exoticism. With just over a year until his presentation in the Australian Pavilion in Venice, I spoke to Archie Moore about why he decided to apply, particularly given curator, writer and artist John Mundine once likened him to a night parrot, one of the most elusive and mysterious birds in the world. Well, I've had several people ask me to apply over the years and I've never really felt ready for it. Um, you know, just hearing people hinting like, oh, you should apply. And I guess they wanted to be the curator part of the team. Got asked again last year and then it was like a week before the submission date and I thought, uh, I'm not really ready. I'll do the next one in 2026. And then heard some rumour about the selection process was going to change, where institutions would choose, uh, nominate people or something like that. And the curator, Ellie Buttress, thought we should do it now and had to really (laughs) hammer down on the um, submission and we did it very quickly, but we worked with a graphic designer and got lots of expert advice about what to do and what to say 
And yeah, we submitted it and then we were on the shortlist. You've worked with Ellie previously. Can you tell me a, a little about what that has involved? Yeah, well, the last show we worked on together was Embodied Knowledge at Quag Goma, Queensland Art Gallery of Modern Art. How did we work together? <laughs> it's just being invited into a show and then you're submitting an idea and uh, whether they like it or not or, you know. I don't know, it wasn't really too much of a... Too much engagement, really. But I, I did one thing I wanted to do with that show was not just hang something on the wall or on a plinth somewhere. I thought I'll I want the water mall. So I thought that's kind of a unique feature inside the gallery of um, Queensland Art Gallery. So I, you know, I chose that, and they were happy with me exhibiting something there. And then I kind of thought, oh, what do I want to put in there? And Sort of went from there. Hmm. Archie, you're only the second Aboriginal artist to be presented at the Venice Biennale, the first being photographer Tracy Moffat in 2017. That's not to say that you are working alone. You'll be working with, obviously you'll work with Ellie, um, but there are other components. I don't know how much you're allowed to say about this. There are other components to this the work that you do that includes sort of some collaboration what can you what can you tell me <laughs> well the, um i know we've removed the language changed the language a bit so they're not collaborators they're contributors contributors love yep uh so there's kevin o'brien torres Strait on the architect quite well known um he's working on the install design. Uh, Larissa Berent and John Mundine are going to be writing for the catalogue. So they've got their own unique angles to bring to that. Larissa with her legal expertise and knowledge. And John's got a very vast knowledge of all kinds of Aboriginal art from more traditional things and Ramanginning and to more contemporary stuff of all kind of media. And, yeah, that's that's my team. And you're, you're working with Larissa um, quite soon, actually. In June, she's contributing to an exhibition that you've got coming up in Cairns. Yes. She wrote for the catalogue um, a small little essay about my work which hasn't been made yet but um she's written on what i proposed to do so um it's going to be called the pillar pillars of democracy but p-i-l-l-o-r some clever wordplay mm. and i'm working with the architecture of the building which used to be an old courthouse and has that um doric columns at the front that classical look of many places from that era that it was built, like libraries and um, banks and things. So I'm just thinking about this idea of the four pillars of democracy. Uh, there's no real consensus or official statement about exactly what these four pillars are. But there's a 
common one that it's the judiciary, executive, uh, equality and media. As you might know, the media is the fourth estate. But I'm, I'm more looking at what did these four pillars, who did they apply for to? It didn't really apply to our Aboriginal people so much. So I'm collecting some articles from Cairns Post of Aboriginal people being tried in that courthouse. So also going to have some photos and video works of things that happened at the Black Lives Matter protests. You might remember there was this quite striking photo of the National Guard out in the front of the Lincoln Memorial where they thought the Black Lives Matter protesters were going to charge in and rampage through. But there was this lineup of people in camouflage gear and helmets protecting the building, which Trump didn't... um, (laughs) didn't do that for January the 6th riots, right? Let them, let those people just run amok. <laughs> but there's also the image of the police protecting the Cook statue here at Hyde Park. In England there was a similar one for Winston Churchill statue. And also I'm going to have some video of protesters tearing down the statues in America. It was just so surprising to see them crumble so easily. I read a story about there was like two surges where there there was a big input of these um, statues to colonialists and Confederate soldiers and stuff. One was in the civil rights movement. They wanted the statues built quickly and so they like churned them out and they were like not solid bronze. They were just like a very hollow casing, and when they pulled on some of them, they just crumpled like paper. So it's really um, amazing videos of that happening. Really speaks to kind of the fragility of national identity. Yeah. The state kind of, yeah. Yeah. Very interesting ideas. I know that with your work, you are often thinking not just about, like not just on sort of that micro level of like of what's happening here in Australia, but you are often kind of extrapolating beyond. Is that something we can expect for your Venice? Yes. um, A lot of my work's kind of personal histories, like being an Aboriginal male in the system in this place, so-called Australia, but... Um, it's kind of a lot of other Aboriginal people's experience as well and also other marginalised people all around the world can, I think we can all identify with, share some, you know, similar thoughts and experiences of that. So part of it is very personal but it's kind of, it's more universal as well which a lot of my other work is, just operates the same way. Personal histories seem to mirror national histories. I thought Ellie put it quite nicely when she talked about you as presenting at Venice Biennale rather than representing. Why is the distinction important? 
Um, yeah, I think that was maybe to do with um, maybe I'm not speaking for every Aboriginal person. I think that was the reason. So that was another language change with um, in our talks and presentations and written materials going to be presenting. Maybe it also sounds a bit more like uh, Olympic Games. <laughs> While the specifics of Archie's visual art project are still under wraps, he says he hopes international audiences will gain a deeper understanding of lived Aboriginal experience and its cultures from his work. In 2017, artist Vernon Arkey explained to ABC Indigenous Radio's editor, Daniel Browning, how Blackfellas featured at the event have at turns interrupted and disrupted Australia's national identity on the world stage. So if you think about Robert Thomas, his, his, his work doesn't disrupt as much as it just interrupts the kind of national nationalism that you usually see in shows that, that have Australia as the leading tag in it. Whereas I think the work of Trevor Nichols certainly would have been a disruption. I think the conversations that he was having within his work certainly would have been been a disruption in the context of what Australia is and, and the way it sees itself. And uh, and I don't know how many artists uh, would be would have that in mind, but certainly Trevor Nichols would have when he was over. He would have been conscious of of his work being a disruption. Um, Rover Thomas less so, certainly not Emily Noire. Yeah. So, um, and then, but that that's that that's at the crux of kind of what what Venice is. You know, do you do you bow to the national narrative and and um, you know pitch your tent on the popularity side of the fence? Or, or do you want to kind of stand on the other side of the fence and um, and hold signs up and uh, alongside mirrors to the country? One way Archie might disrupt the narrative is by drawing on his own family history. For the Sydney Biennale in 2016, Archie, assisted by architect Kevin O'Brien, who will be working with him again for Venice, recreated Benelong's hut drawing a connection between Benelong's story and his own grandmother's history. Here's Archie again. Yeah, so last three years I've gotten very interested in family history, which I kind of ignored for a while. Like, wasn't sure who, you know, my father was my real father kind of thing, or some of the stories you'd hear from my Aboriginal mother's side, whether they were true or not, or there's kind of a lot of horrible stories, so it was another reason why I didn't really want to look into it. <laughs> but mm. um, I found a lot about my father since I've... because he wasn't... Was, he was a bit of a mystery what he was up to before I was born when he was 62 years old. He was born in 1908, which is pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, since then I found people have sent me photos of him from 1930 as a young man. I've never seen him as a young person before. 
So all that's kind of very interesting. Um, but yeah, so I've been putting that family history research into my shows lately. A big family tree I did that one goes back 60,000 years and doing shows, recreating my home, childhood home. I've done four of those large-scale installations. Yeah, so another theme is like putting the viewer in my shoes or more precisely this not knowing what the other knows or if they really understand or experience what you experience. It's that impossibility of knowing another as a bit of a metaphor for reconciliation, failures, you know, like will white Australia and black Australia ever get to know or understand each other fully? Mm. That's a bit of a thing as well. And I use very multidisciplinary artists, so I'm doing... I find all media interesting to work with that something might suit another idea better than, you know, doing a painting. I'm a, I've done paper sculptures. I've used smell, work with a perfumer to create smells that create memories. And video sometimes and sound works. When you're working with subject matter that is so personal... And then that becomes, I guess, you're working with subject matter that's deeply personal, that is for public consumption. Like, do you ever, do you get worried about sort of putting yourself out there in that way? Um, and how that might change your relationship to your own family history or memories? Yeah, well... Very interested in memory, how it works. So, like, I know it's a fallible thing and it's reconstructive. Like, each time you remember something, you, something may disappear and some things might be added or altered in some way. I've seen this happen with people. Um, they tell me something, and, and you, like a, a university... A uh, lecturer was talking about a Werner Herzog film about these people who lived on a volcano and they all abandoned their homes because it was about to erupt and, and he's talking about the, the empty homes with the TV still on. And I said, oh, did you see that in the film? He said, yeah. And I said, no, that wasn't in there. It was spoken about but they never showed it but he remembers it being seen. So things like that I'm kind of interested in. But also creating a new memory for people that are visiting the show. Some people haven't experienced Dettol before. <laughs> so it's like one scent I use sometimes. So, and I think some people have said that it reminds me of the show when they, when they smell, have smelled it somewhere else. That's so funny to have it, yeah, kind yeah. of trigger. But it's, for, it's a different memory for me because we used to have Dettol baths and that, and that was kind of an internal racism my mother had this fear of authorities coming to take the children away if they're not clean enough and if you're Aboriginal you're much dirtier and more infectious than the other non-Aboriginal people 
So it was like that kind of can never be clean enough mm. back then. Anyway, I don't know. If I know that I the, the most consistent argument that I have with my mum is around my hair and mm. that um, if she doesn't think that I've brushed it, I need to brush it because I look like nobody owns me. Ah, and okay. like that kind of, yeah. and it took me a while to kind of really um, tweak to, to where that idea had come from mm-hmm. and that it was... Yeah, that kind of nervousness around what will other people think yeah. of me as a mother yeah. um, and and my capacity to raise my children. Yeah. It's more about her than you. Mm. And her own kind of anxieties around that. I don't know that she'll appreciate me saying that on the radio. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. We'll talk about it. Yeah. Um, I was really interested to hear that in doing some of your research on your family history, you had discovered that um, the way you put it was that you had royalty in your family. Yeah, so my great-great-grandmother on my mother's side was a woman called Queen Susan of Welltown and she lived on a a sheep property in Bunganya. It was called Welltown. And she was one of the few, it was less common that women got the queen title and the breast, breastplate, which you would know about. Breastplates mm. and chiefs of certain groups called King Billy or whatever. There's not much I've found about, that goes into detail about her, but there was a little bit in the bulletin, a bulletin article that said that she refused to wear it because it was so heavy. But apparently she did put it on when some kind of dignitary visited. Yeah, so that's as far back as I can go on my mother's side, which is 1800s. Has that information gone into any of your work yet? Um... No, I haven't really used that. um, There's a couple of photos of her too that I've I've come across in the archives. Um, But I was thinking of doing a painting of her, one of those photos maybe. Um, Yeah, and there's a photo of her with two children that are related. And like the further I go back on my father's side, it's like 1500s I've been back. So that's quite a long way. Mm. <laughs> and that was Scottish, Scottish North England. When do you know that something you've, um, something you've found is going to spark a, a piece of work? How does that kind of get, how do you make that decision for yourself? Doing the family history research is kind of, I was kind of anxious, I think, you know, going back, matrilineal line and the patrilineal line and thinking because they kind of go back to the same area in Australia at least and I was kind of anxious because it might would I find some white relatives that have killed my black relatives or been involved in something like that massacre or something 
I mean, it's the it's kind of the constant um, anxiety of yeah. yeah, this place. My father was not kind of from um, Kulatai near Warialda in, in Viral, kind of near Mile Creek. Quite well known massacre site yeah. there at Mile Creek. Mm. Yeah. And my, you know, and it was interesting seeing my father's father just win this huge amount of land and a land ballot. I thought, oh, he just got given that. And my my black grandparents living in a corrugated iron hut, the dirt floor in this town on land that they, they used to, our grandparents' family ancestors used to own. Um, and... So sometimes when I'm invited to have a show somewhere, I research the site if I haven't been there before and I'll see what's happened there, but the history of that place and the memory of that place and see if there's anything that will give me an idea to what the work will be at that place. So just looking at old newspapers like searching for the address and asking people what they know or if there's photos or whatever. Yeah. Because yeah, I think me- memory in place is kind of a big part of a lot of the things I make. Yeah. Archie Moore there. His exhibition will open in the Australian Pavilion next year on April 20 and run through until November 24. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.